I have to confess that when I get up here and do an introduction of a speaker, it's usually hard for me to cram everything I want to say into one introduction, and that's if there's just one presenter. So tonight, I almost wonder whether I should even bother with an introduction with three very distinguished historians sitting up here on stage. Um, and I think if I started reeling off all their various accomplishments and publications, we'd run out of time for the show. So I don't want to do that. Um, but I want to, do want to give you just a little bit of background about the show. In 2005, Andrew Wyndham of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, who is here somewhere, um, had an idea that it would be a great idea to have a show on the radio about history, uh, a call-in radio show that would deal with topics plucked from today's headlines and give them some sort of historical context. There's Andrew. He's being very modest and sitting in the shadows. Um, well, anyhow, Andrew contacted Peter Onuf and Ed Ayers at the University of Virginia History Department, who study the 18th and 19th centuries, respectively, and Peter and Ed quickly drew their colleague Brian Bella into this uh, mad venture, And because, um, of course, they knew that they needed a 20th century guy. They, they probably recognized that the 20th century is awfully important. Um, they disagree. And devotees of the show, like me, can tell you that the sort of lighthearted ribbing that they give each other about which century is the most important is an important element of the show. This is not a stuffy, serious history show. This is fun, it's energetic, it's very fast-paced. Um, and the conversation is great. It seems as if you're standing there listening to a couple of colleagues and friends sitting around a table, whether that's a coffee table or a bar table or a departmental meeting table, and it sounds like they're enjoying each other's company and picking each other's brains and doing the kind of thing that we all wish we could sit around and do with talented people. Most of us, though, don't get the chance to do this, and hence the idea for the radio show. So after a couple of years in development, uh, where Andrew sort of took the guys through their paces, figured this stuff out, they launched the show on radio in 2008. And it's been going strong ever since. It's gotten rave reviews from publications around the country. It's carried by more than 70 radio stations at this point. Is that right? And it's available also for podcast downloads on their website. So it's listened to by people all around the world. And if you tune into the show, you'll notice they get calls and questions from people across the United States and even around the world. So the digital world that Backstory inhabits is truly one without borders. The concept of the show is really simple. Each episode tackles a single subject in the headlines and tries to give people some sense of its historical background. Now, I think there are a few better ways to demonstrate the relevance of history to people's lives than to do this, to provide context, because I think you'll all agree that in the fast-paced, kind of live-in-the-moment world that we're in, context is very often lacking, especially on important issues of the day. And that's why I wanted to bring backstory here uh, to the VHS and introduce you to the American History Guys, because I think as an organization, we can provide no better service than to add that perspective to all of our lives on important issues. And those issues can be fun, things like the history of holidays, which they've done, to very serious subjects like war and uh, other, other sorts of very somber, uh, uh, very thought-provoking topics. So I very much hope this is the first step in a continued relationship between us and Backstory and the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. And I want to thank our donor who made tonight's uh, program possible. Uh, that donor wishes to remain anonymous, but I really appreciate the support, and it allows me to do this. Um, 
I should say this is a, a little housekeeping matter. There are going to be microphones placed there and here for you to ask questions of the guy. This is an audience-driven show, and you will be given lots of opportunities to come to those microphones and ask questions. So please, please be prepared to do so. Please, please be patient if you have to wait in line. And by the way, I should mention that yesterday, Ed Ayers mentioned that so far no one had asked a question that stumped the guys. So uh, I, cons <laughs> I consider that a, that's right. I consider that a gauntlet thrown right down here in front of this stage. So I think we need to show them what a VHS audience can do to stump these guys. Thanks a lot, Ed. Yeah, there you go. So in any, in any event, here are 18th century guy and University of Virginia's Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professor Peter Onuf, 19th century guy and University of Richmond president, and as a VHS trustee, one of my bosses, Ed Ayers, <laughs> and 20th century guy and University of Virginia professor of history, Brian Ballow. The Tea Party movement has been credited with unseating establishment politicians in Massachusetts, Utah, Florida, and most recently, Kentucky. Now, Peter, you know that there are a lot of people on the other side of the aisle who would argue that these Tea Partiers are just all wet, uh, that, in fact, Americans uh, are paying income tax at rates uh, that haven't been this low for 60 years, that Americans pay smaller amounts of taxes than citizens in other industrialized countries. And all of that really raises a very important question. Why does the, the topic of taxation continue to touch a nerve here in America? And you know there's really only one place to look for the answer. There's only one place we ever look. And that's the past. The past holds all answers. And that's what Backstory is all about, turning to history to shed some light on something that seems so contentious or unproblematic today. We take things that are uh, roiling the waters and saying, well, is this new? Is this something that has uh, really disturbed America before? Or uh, have we seen this pattern in the past? If you're listening at home, you might hear an unusual resonance in our voices that those sexy radio voices are being repressed. And that's because we're not in our regular studio, but rather here in the very handsome Robin Family Forum at the Virginia Historical Society in Richmond, Virginia. And we have a few very special guests with us here. Special guests! Make a little noise, all right! Yes! In a few minutes, we're going to open up the floor to questions from you audience members and see if you can stump my friends. But uh, <laughs> get you in the mood, we're going to invite a little audience participation right now. I want to hear the radio version of a show of hands here. How many of you out there think we Americans are taxed too much? If you think so, loud! Come on, shout out! Shout out! Make it. Let okay. your fellow Americans hey, hear this. Hey, uh, how come I got stuck with this question? How many of you think we're not taxed enough? Yes! Hey! Oh, not Woo! bad, not bad. And how many of you think that your taxes should support backstory? No, no, that's <laughs> right. Anybody here think, and I want you to be very serious about this, this is the most sensitive public opinion poll that's been taken in years, that we're taxed just right. 
<laughs> all right. Right. I, I wouldn't have been able to predict that at all. But, but that's amazing. Guys, I, let, let's, let's. You know, you people for, for you out there in radio right. hand, nobody was uh, yeah. applauding. Yeah. That really is dead air. Right. Now, let, let, me, let me just ask, guys, because let's turn to history. I'm, I'm just really curious to know whether you think, you know, Peter, people sitting in the 18th century, if they were here in this beautiful auditorium, would they have answered the same way? Well, we couldn't quite have fit everybody in 18th century Virginia <laughs> into this auditorium. Almost. But had they been here, they would have been really loud with that first one because taxes were bad. And you know why? Because they didn't know they were paying them. That's the great thing about taxation. When you know you're paying it, you don't like it. But most revenues that supported colonial Virginia came from import and export duties. Uh, Virginia tobacco and Maryland tobacco was really important in supporting the English exchequer in the 18th century, but ordinary Virginians and planters were not aware of being taxed directly, and that's why the Stamp Act in 1765 set off such a brush fire. So uh, we should uh, talk about these attitudes and, and try to conjure up the feeling of the 18th century and. And I think the best way to do, do that would be to listen to a tape we have. But first, I went down to, Virginia, uh, to Williamsburg recently. You know, the, it's always the 18th century in Williamsburg. And uh, I, I took my tape recorder along and we talked to one of the most famous of the early tax resistors, the leader of the first great tax revolt that made this great country what it is today. And that would be none other than Patrick Henry. Can you cue that tape up? Why, uh, this is Patrick Henry? Good morrow, sir. Uh, right. Uh, Indeed. Peter Ona from Charlottesville. Well, Charlottesville, sir. Right. One of my very worthy friends and longtime associates is of that place. Well, you know, we've spoken and uh, we've talked about small your skills talk with the about our mutual friend, <laughs> <Thomas> <laughs> Yes, well, uh, in fact, I, uh, I believe I had some part in, in Mr. Jefferson taking up that instrument himself. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Jefferson has first tax revolts took place. The year 1765, and a tax collector named George Mercer had just arrived in town to collect the stamp tax imposed by Parliament earlier that year. An angry crowd, not nearly as nice as you folks, well, we don't know that yet, actually, <laughs> <laughs> was waiting for him and uh, demanded that he resign his post as tax collector immediately or face the consequences. Patrick Henry wasn't there, but the freshman legislator had already made a name for himself by denouncing what he called, you'll like this, taxation without representation, which gave Washington, D.C. its license plate. So, <laughs> I mean, nobody thinks of Patrick Henry when you think about driving in the district. So I asked Henry to explain what exactly this stamp tax was all about. Oh. The Stamp Act itself was a monstrous piece of business. Fifty-five provisions, sir, whereby virtually any piece of paper which would trade hands here in these American colonies would have to be stamped paper, bearing the smiling likeness of King George III, and these stamps and the stamped paper itself being purchased at excessive, outrageous fees. 
and things so commonplace affecting every workaday life. Licenses, wills, deeds, newspapers, stationery, playing cards. Mr. Henry, you are getting very excited about this. Uh, what I, I need to know, though, is uh, George Mercer is a respectable fellow Virginian. Why didn't he understand that there would be this popular outrage against the Stamp Act? Well, Mr. Mercer is one of these uh, most conservative families in this country. He, uh, like many of these uh, Eastern men, would submit tamely, like worms, to the oppressive acts of Parliament. And uh, furthermore, sir, I dare say he stood to profit as a result of the experience. The stamp collector naturally receives a handsome salary. And uh, so, as I understand it, there were a number of gentlemen in the uh, city of Williamsburg who chanced upon Mr. Mercer uh, shortly after he had landed. Well, it was on the main street, the Duke of Gloucester, just uh, quite near where we are now, here at the coffee house. And uh, as I understand it, Mr. Mercer was prevailed upon by these gentlemen. And, uh, Excuse me, Mr. Henry. I, I think you're talking about a mob that formed outside the coffee house and that George Mercer was intimidated by that mob. Is that a, a fair characterization? What you would call a mob, sir, I might refer to as devoted lovers of liberty. <laughs> okay, so Peter, how, how did things work out for those devoted lovers well, of liberty? I'd like to know something about these devoted liberty, lovers of liberty, too, uh, and that is uh, most of you think the American Revolution was a good thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah come on. <laughs> all right. Ah, all right. Let's cheer for liberty. Are there any loyalists? <laughs> I know there's some unreconstructed <laughs> confederates, but no loyalists? I'm <laughs> just joking. All right. So Stay out of my century. <laughs> Whoa. I got, I got news for you, liberty lovers. Big mistake. If this was a tax revolt, you blew it because the revolution cost you big time. Tax rates went up by an order of magnitude because you were not taxed much before. You should have rolled over and paid the stamp duty. <laughs> Would have been much better for you. What the revolution does is really crunch the taxpayer in the states, because the states were the source of income. Congress couldn't raise any revenue at all, so it turned to the states for requisitions. And there was a currency shortage, there was a depression, and you taxpayers, your ancestors right here in Virginia, they couldn't pay, and some of them got very upset, and guess what? The tax revolt led to tax revolts. But I got one other thing to tell you. I want you to put this in your teapot and brew it. <coughs> Tea. And that is this. When the federal government was established in 1789 under the new federal constitution, this was an enormous measure of tax relief for taxpayers in Virginia and the other states, up to 90% tax relief. And so the best thing that ever happened to you disgruntled taxpayers was the creation of a powerful central government. Hold on, hold oh! on, hold on, Peter. <laughs> did, did you process that yet? I didn't, I didn't. So, I, I didn't. So you're saying that the way Virginians got tax relief is to create the very kind of government they hated the most, yeah, a distant, centralized right, government. Right, and that's why we got to create a world government right now. <laughs> Tax relief for America. Let the Greeks pay. No, sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. Peter, 
tell, tell me something else. Yeah. How, how did the federal how government? Did they do it? How did the federal government raise well, taxes? Well, you know, the best taxes are the ones, as I said, you don't know you're paying. And what the federal government could do was to collect import duties for the first time. It monopolized the collection of import duties, and all of a sudden, magico presto, Hamilton assumes the debts. The states are no longer saddled with those big debts. The federal government can do it. They get good credit in overseas markets because they are servicing their debt, and everything's fine. And you are relieved. And so, Ed, Piece of cake. Piece of cake. You just Aren't import duties yeah, wonderful. Import Think about it. Right. They loved it, right? Uh, Throughout you, the country. You gotta love them because you know you don't really see them. The ship pulls up. You know they pay the duties on them. Add a little bit to the cost. Who would ever know <laughs> that they were adding these? Well, it turns out that history kept on, and despite the valiant fights for liberty, people still had to pay taxes. It had to come from somewhere, and. There's a word that all of you will remember from your high school textbook. Didn't really know what it was then. We'll talk about it now, the tariff. Uh, we know it was... Oh, the, the beginning well, of the Yeah, no, well, please don't leave the tariff. It's, it's actually interesting. This will pass quickly. We'll get into, <laughs> into the income tax, things like that. But the tariff is really the, the engine of American taxation for a long time because they, they want to hide the taxes, and this is, seems to be a relatively fair way to do it. If you buy stuff, you pay taxes for it. If you don't buy stuff, you don't. So why did you Southerners get all upset about well, it? Well, because... We make him speak for the South. It's his funny accent. I don't have an accent, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of, I don't know why you say that. So uh, what happened was that after the War of 1812, uh, they uh, cut off supplies from England, and some manufacturers began to grow up in the North. Well, then the war ends, darn it, you know, and, and, and threatened all that business, and so they said, nope. We're going to protect it. We have the protective tariff so that these nascent industries continue to grow. Well, everybody in Virginia to the south didn't have these industries. And they're going, wait a minute. This tariff means that I'm paying more for everything that I'm buying, but it also means that the people that we're buying these from are less likely to buy our cotton and tobacco and wheat and all that well, sort of stuff. Why don't you manufacture your own stuff? Because we're so good at growing stuff. You would want you to with your slaves. Yeah, well, and it turns out that the American South was one of the least taxed societies in world history. Well, wait, let me ask a serious question. Yeah. What did they tax in the South? Uh, well, they did. They it ended up taxing slaves. Yeah. Uh, so enslaved people were the basis of, the, of this. But what that meant is if you were not a slaveholder, you paid very few taxes uh, in, the, in the antebellum South. And things went along, and people kind of argued about this in the late 1820s, early 1830s, the tariff of abominations. South Carolina, John C. Calhoun gets all worked up about this. Andrew Jackson, a fellow slaveholder and, and Southerner, says, I can see why you're worked up, and we're going to lower them a little bit. Hey, but you are not going to be nullifying federal law, so stop that. So then, actually, the tariff kind of settles down. The 1830s, the 1840s, the 1850s, it's not really a big issue. The American economy is booming. There's other ways to bring in money. Let's sell some of that land out there that we're taking away from the American Indians, and it's not really a big deal. But then, you may know, in the middle of the 19th century, Brian, there's this thing called the Civil War <laughs> that, that comes along. Oh. Yeah. And so then what you have, people right here in Richmond and throughout the South, suddenly go from being one of the least taxed people to being very heavily taxed. You started another war. 
Well, it serves to, you and, right. And in some ways to, you know, to avoid unjust uh, appropriations of wealth as, as the white southerners saw it, they created this new government and taxed in ways that they had never seen before, never really imagined before. And uh, so we won't go through the whole story. Some of you may still have Confederate money at home. I've, it's not going to come back. I just thought I'd mention that to you. But that's the way the South had to create this because um, they weren't really very good at taxing. The North was great at taxation, and the North taxed everything, especially all kinds of luxury goods and all this. The South said, well, we can't really f catch people to make them pay taxes. We'll just keep making money. Uh, and so, as you know, inflation really took off. And, but the North needs more money, so they have a tariff. They also create an income tax. 1861, first income tax created by the Union during the Civil War. Um, and so, but as you can imagine, they have to tax everything just to keep driving this war machine. And they get used to uh, spending all this money, the Republicans. Now back then, the active party for the growth of the government were the Republicans, and they loved the tariff. They were the inheritors of the Whig tradition who loved the tariff because they wanted to build up things like national universities and build roads and dig canals, and they thought money would be good to do that with. But the Democrats back then said, nope, we'll take care of ourselves. Don't need no roads. We're not going to do that. Uh, and, uh, don't need no schools either. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, really don't need anything that requires taxation. So the Republicans become known, partly coming out of, of the Civil War, as the party of the high tariff and of active big government. In fact, by the 1880s, the government's bringing in so much money, they're embarrassed by it. And one of the charges against the Republicans is that they were, and I hold on to your seats, named or not, they were the <laughs> billion dollar Congress. Yes, if you can believe that, Whoa. Congress spent one billion dollars. Oh. What they spend it on? Oh. They spent it mainly on Pensions, Republicans, Republic, other Republicans <laughs> that they, they spent Yankee pensions, pensions for Union soldiers, and Confederate uh, soldiers did not get those. So, uh, across the 19th century, you see the tariff come and go. It's heavily sectional. The big issue is not so much wealth as it is areas of the country, right. and it, it feeds into all the major conflicts. Yeah, but um, I just want to say to just tiptoe into the 20th century. Now go right ahead. That, no no that, taxes in the that, 20th century. That no. wealth does become a big issue because one of the things that that high revenue tariff does is protect. And what it protects best mm -hmm. are big corporations and big trusts. And so by the end of Ed's period, you get the populace who say we got to break up some of these trusts. And you know, I think a very good way to do this and a progressive way to do it would be the income tax. Which, it, which had been faded away in the early 1870s, yeah. so there's no yeah. income tax anymore. They tried it again at the very end of Ed's century, and the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. Uh, so it's not, as many of you know, it's not really until, it's not until uh, the 16th Amendment, 1913, that we finally get an income tax. And I think we get it for several reasons. One, a lot of people felt the government's doing more and more, we really got to come up with a steady stream of revenue for protecting forests against forest fires, for doing irrigation all the way out in Nevada. Uh, but we also really need to stop protecting those manufacturers as much uh, so that we can have a more progressive way 
of extracting income. Yeah, because sometimes from the, citizens. those tariffs were 100% of the value of the goods. And people say, this is just a, sort of a, 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 buy, a, a protection of Wall Street. This is yeah. a protection of big business. This is not the way that things were meant to be. That's right. So the, the good news for those of you who don't think the income tax is such a great thing is when it was passed, it only covered 1% of the entire population. Basically, people who could put brass plaques on seats here at the Historical <laughs> Society. Right? Now, that story is going to change, but something tells me that some of you are going to have questions about the 20th century. So uh, we, we are going to do what we love to do here at Backstory. You know, on a radio show, people from all over the world write into our website and our producers uh, phone him back and ask him to call in the questions. Uh, we do not know the questions ahead of time. Or even is, after we answer we, them. Or even after we answer them, which is why we get many of them wrong. But, <laughs> but uh, we're never uh, stumped. We're just we're wrong. Just, exactly. No, we have some very knowledgeable exactly. callers. We count on him. And frankly, I think if you asked any of us, the part of the show we like the most is taking those calls and seeing what's going to happen. So what do you think, guys? Uh, I think we should take some calls. Let's go to the phones. That's my job, and I want you all, if you have a question, yep, the phone is ringing. Please come forward to the microphone. And identify yourself. Tell us uh, your first name. Tell us your first name. Tell us where you're from. And uh, we will answer your questions. Yes, sir. I'm Art Donalds, a retired professor from the University of Richmond, so I'm pleased to see our president here. Hey, hey. I'm uh, bitterly disappointed that we don't have a 21st century man on the panel. <laughs> That's because, our producer. He's behind the glass window. <laughs> He's really young. Because my question deals with the 21st century. Um, that's, his, that's his century. He comes we've already here. learned that there are some people here who think we're taxed too much and some that think we're taxed uh, too little. There have been a couple of studies in the last few years indicating that by not just by international comparison are we taxed less than anybody else, but also that we have a whole series of obligations that are going to be increasingly difficult to meet with our current tax system. Whether you're talking about national defense, whether you're talking about Social Security, whether you're talking about Medicaid, Medicare, um, a whole series of things with the current tax system, uh, these are going to come under serious pressure. And this is above and beyond all of the other things the government does. And so serious um, scholars have said, we will not have any choice, whether we like it or not, but to raise taxes. And as you know, the president has appointed a commission to look into this issue, but um, those that are especially against taxes have said that's dead on arrival because under no circumstances will we allow any increased taxes. So it seems to me that we're going to be faced in the next few years with a very serious dilemma, and that is either we increase taxes or we reduce seriously lots of services and benefits that we've come to accept and, um, and appreciate. Yeah, Thank you. I, I would just add a, a third option to that, and that's that we inflate the currency. Uh, in order to pay off debt with an inflated currency, which is a form of taxation itself. Ed referred back what, to that. One of the most invisible century. forms of all. Right. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I agree uh, with your assessment, 
one of the things that I think is useful about history is there have been moments in history where we seem to face these impossible set of choices. The one I would cite in the uh, 20th century is the viability of Social Security. I know that it's becoming unviable again, but back in the 80s, uh, Ronald Reagan put together a commission and people said nobody's ever going to come to an agreement on this. And in fact, they extended the retirement age slightly. They increased the amount of taxes on people contributing to Social Security. And they made Social Security viable for at least 30 years, uh, which, as in my family, we say is not chopped liver. Uh, <laughs> now, it's, it's not you know, it's not definitive. It's not going to last forever. I think another example from the 20th century would be the base closing commission. People said, oh, you know, Democrats, Republicans are never going to come together uh, and close bases. It's too important uh, for local economies, and folks in Virginia understand that well. Yet the base closing commission was able to come up with some pretty reasonable recommendation. There's probably more to be done on that front, so I don't know if you folks- Well, I, I love uh, the fact that the 20th century guy can be so optimistic. Man, I'm glad to be in the 18th century, but I will say, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this, and this is a serious point I wanna make, and that is when one of these crises emerges, this is a big one that we're in right now, and I don't look forward to the 21st century, happily I won't live through much of it myself, uh, the result is that the regime has got to change and adapt. It's not that we're gonna get away from taxes, but the regime, the government, has to be reformed and transformed so it has the legitimacy to make the demands on taxpayer citizens that it's going to have to make. And that's the big crisis, I think, in American politics yeah, now, today. Now, here's the bad news. When has... <laughs> that was a revolution I'm talking when about. <laughs> have, when has the American regime had that legitimacy? Consistently, it's been during wartime. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, if, if we'd asked that question that we asked at the beginning of this, we would have had dead silence for the same question that we got in here. Are taxes just right? Nobody has ever thought that they were. And the history of taxation in this country is a pendulum swinging back and forth from one side to the other, usually punctuated by war that completely reshuffles the deck. So I don't mean, I don't know if these are optimistic. Well, no, I think Something I, will happen. That's a, that's a the, great the country point. won't just grind down and fall apart. Um, and what we see is yeah, that th it, Those are the two models. One, a total mobilization that war suggests, and the other is a revitalization of, uh, of our sense of connection with our governments. And I think that's vital. And that's what the revolution did. I joked about people paying higher taxes. They were willing to do it to the very limit because it was their government. And it's if people don't think it's their government, that's where you're going to have problems. And that's why we're going to hang up on you, sir. He's out of here. <laughs> he hung up on us. <laughs> he hung up on us. You never hang up <laughs> on Peter, the history, guys. Peter, don't history forget, remembers. We have two phones, Peter. Oh, there are two phones. And we're going to take a call from far out there in our world. And this is from? Uh, I'm Sam Olmschneider, uh, and I'm a history teacher here in Richmond. Um, 
And I'm kind of curious, there is one major pendulum swing that didn't involve a war. Uh, all the way through the uh, first half, or the, the, the second part of the first half in the middle of the 20th century, Whoa. there was a multi- I, I wasn't year? very good what at What year was that? <laughs> uh, from about 1935 until right. about 1978, 1980, yeah. there was a bipartisan consensus about taxation that then fell apart. Um, what was the uh, sort of New Deal consensus about taxation that lasted and what were the political processes that led it to fall apart without a major war or a single major problem like that? Vietnam is there, but it's not primary in the tax debate, I guess. Yeah. So. Well, I'd love to defer to the 18th century. <laughs> we even, have all the answers. With, <laughs> even with my bad math, it seems to be the 20th century you're asking about. Uh, first of all, I would say there was not the great consensus. I, I would start your period of consensus later. Uh, I would start it with 39 or 40, with the buildup to World War II, really starting with the tremendous cost of Lend-Lease. And then I think you are absolutely right. There is a remarkable consensus about, and very little complaining, about paying huge increases in the income tax. You sound like a very good teacher, and so you probably know, in 1939, only four million Americans paid the income tax. By 1944, there were over 40 million Americans who paid the income tax, right? That is when Americans started paying taxes, and you barely heard a peep about it. So you're right. Why did that continue uh, through the 1950s? In two words, Cold War. Americans felt, and it's one of our, appears to be an emerging theme, Americans felt they were in this twilight death struggle against the Soviet Union, and their tax dollars seem to be going to good ends. But I'd add a second factor, and that's the economy. The economy was growing. People were moving into the middle class. Their incomes were increasing. Even though they were paying more taxes, it didn't seem that bad. They had a better quality of life. Why did that end? Of course, I could point to Vietnam where Many Americans felt their taxes were being wasted, but that's not the main thing I would point to. I would point to a change in the American economy, a sense that people were not doing as well economically in the 60s and 70s, and by the middle of the 1970s, you get all kinds of tax revolts at the state and local level, and by 1978, you get the big enchilada. I, I shouldn't make these chopped liver and enchilada metaphors before dinner. Just don't put it in the enchilada. Uh, put it in the enchilada. You, you, you get the big enchilada of tax revolts, and that's Proposition 13 in California. So I hope that answers your question. You know, uh, when people are on the phone, they can say things back yeah. to us, and you, yeah. you may as well. We cut them off, but... You know, <laughs> Um, I, I am kind of curious, though, what role the, uh, the societal tumult of the 1960s and sort of the, um, the polarization between different groups within American society that occurred during that period had in, in some people's uh, rejection of that tax consensus um, and other people's continued acceptance of it because there was a major sort of social realignment going on as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a terrific question. Again, there were, uh, I was just looking at some documents, uh, tax protesters from the far left. They, sure. they, they did not want to pay taxes that were going for bombs and napalm in Vietnam. Uh, far more quietly, and again, much more on the local level than at the national level, a number of people 
uh, on the right side of the aisle, a number of conservatives were saying, we don't like these great society programs. Uh, this is not helping bring the country together. We don't want to pay uh, ta our taxes for people who are not like us, uh, and a whole range of arguments as to why we shouldn't pay taxes. And of course, it's exactly at that point in time, because of Johnson's failure to adequately pay for the Vietnam War, that the United States begins to run a greater and greater debt. And I think there's another factor, uh, Brian, and, and that is from the beginning of American history, the fear that somebody somewhere else is gathering taxes in order to support a permanent bureaucracy or government, place men as they were called in the 18th century, that uh, had no productive function. All they did was collect taxes and live off of them. That sense of a predatory political class is fundamental to our understanding uh, in American political history. And the other element is, is the sneaking suspicion that somewhere somebody's not paying their fair share. Right? Exactly that's, that's right. one of the great constants. There's always the belief that I'm paying up and they are not. And whether it's somebody in the back country or somebody in the north or the south or the west or uh, some ethnic group or some class, you know. One of the things that we're seeing is that taxation is like a, a canary in the coal mine. or It's not really an independent right. variable. It's so right. tied into money supply, foreign policy, demographic change. You know, and, and what you think you're getting from your government. Right. And what your you think government representing you. But yeah. one thing about it, we're transparent, and so we know that there are callers waiting. So I think we, sh we should go to the next caller yeah, because we're responsive. Right. What's it worth to you? <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to make these pay calls, but we couldn't figure out the technology was too much for us. Yes, ma'am. We know our government's cheating us. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's sort of a reaction to the gentle dig about the slave-holding South. I do remember a little bit from my history books that there was a lot of money made in the North from rum running and slave ships. Yeah. And that's where the bulk of this huge amount of money that still exists, I guess it's the law of compounding interests that have made the Yankee side very, very wealthy as opposed to a very broken South side, which is now coming back. Um, but um, I do want to um, say that there was a group of businessmen in, um, I guess it was the 1990s that um, said our tax system is really, really broken. If you take the tax code books that we have now and you pile them one book on top of another, it's over nine feet tall. Nobody can figure it out. Every different tax preparer will be give, come out with a different answer. So, um, and I'm also thinking, yeah, that in 1913, when I go back to the year of my mother's birth, in the dead of the night, maybe Christmas Eve, that's when they passed that. I think there was a group of men that wanted um, centralized banking, which is something that our country had really, really mm -hmm. fought against for centuries. Uh, and so then they got this uh, voluntary tax, 1% of only the people who wanted to pay it to pay for World War I, I think it was, something like that. Um, now we've come to this tax, impossible tax code where things are more and more, and the bureaucracy is more and more and they're now stumbling over each other. Washington's so big, they're expanding way into the, practically the Fredericksburg. And um, so this group of businessmen got together and they asked um, the top economists of these major universities what could be done about our tax system. And they came up with the answer of scrapping the entire thing. And they came out with something called fair tax. Do you know anything about fair tax? Businesses are not taxed. There's no withholding on people's salaries. And yet all the revenue that's needed 
still goes to Washington. And it's a kind of a voluntary tax system, but um, people are encouraged more by it to save rather than to spend, as it is under a current system. You, government cannot manipulate the people the way they're doing now with special interests and the like. So I'm thinking that um, if we all knew more about the fair tax and how it works, it's, um, it's not on businesses, so therefore all that hidden tax in the new car that you buy from all those component parts aren't in there, but you would pay when you go to buy it the 23% tax that's currently in there. And so it's a revenue neutral that way. But it's also um, all that trillions of dollars that are offshore now would come flooding back, the investments would come, and our jobs problem would probably just go away. And I wonder what you all think of that. I knew there was going to be a question. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody want a card? I <laughs> all right. Now, thank you for, very much for that question. I, I would like to repeat something that Ed just said, and that is we like to isolate taxes, and we come up with this grand panacea. And I'm not going to quarrel about the details of it. There, the logic may be impeccable. But what I, what I will say is that those books that are that high are there for a reason, and that the tax code is not something that some, some weird mad scientist thought up in order to make lives, our lives miserable. You have to track the history of what government has done in America and the demands that we make on government, not just for particular programs, but for exemptions for the whole thing that makes the tax code so complex. Yeah. It's a way we favor one group or activity over another, family values, mortgage deductions, right? Yeah, and, and, and I'll just you know, make a very narrow comment. Um, World War I was not funded by voluntary tax contributions. Uh, in fact, the income tax was increased dramatically during World War I and taxes paid for 25%. Uh, I mean, taxes were 25% of the GDP during World War I, one of the highest rates of uh, federal taxation ever compared to the GDP. And I can assure you those were not voluntary taxes. But maybe what you're thinking of are war bonds, uh, another form of taxation where patriotic Americans bought bonds knowing that they might get a slightly better return elsewhere, but they wanted to buy those bonds. That's one of the ways we financed World War I, and it was a crucial way of financing World War II. It goes back to Peter's point, and this does transcend centuries. Ultimately, regimes are legitimate when they can get people to do things like buy war bonds. Yes, pay their taxes, not cheap, but also pay war bonds, where they might make more money, but they really buy into what the country is doing because they believe it and they want to be a part of that. It strikes me again another continuity of all of this is the constant search for a taxation system that's not only fair but visible mm -hmm. in the right way. Okay, so that's one of the, the, the principles I hear. That the, the British got in trouble when they made it too visible by putting <laughs> literally stamps on everything oh, called I that see way. That. Right. right? And people it, across the 19th and 20th century were able to get away with really increased taxes as long as it's invisible on the tariff or during the war or with inflation. Right. So, one thing for us to think about is why do we have the lowest inflation in 44 years if What's its relationship to taxes? So one thing about being historians and one thing about living in the 19th century, 
with, which had a, a lot of terrible things in it, is that even the 21st century doesn't look that scary. You know, because compared to the problems that people face in real wartime, compared to the problems that people faced in slavery, compared to the problems that people faced when segregation held us in thrall, the problems of today are fiscal problems that can be solved. So looking at the big span of American history, these are things with, go back to Peter's right. point, with enough goodwill and ingenuity and intelligence and a sense of, a reason for it that they can be fixed. I find that people always imagine that we're living in the most dangerous times, that things are out of control, that back in the old days things were somehow more stable. They weren't. Okay? There was never a time. And so one of the things I think that history can give us is a kind of a flywheel to give us some sense of perspective about all of this. So in the same way that we know that the rate of taxation now is actually quite low by international standards, and in some ways even by some historic standards, uh, that people will put forward ideas like this. They will be debated. If you believe in democracy, you believe that the, the, the ideas that make sense will find their way into action. I have another question. Didn't we have, well, I, didn't we have I, I just, a split between Hamilton and centralized control and Henry uh, Clay, and then now, uh, Jefferson and uh, more decentralization. Wasn't there that little thing going on, which really kind of continues to this day between, let's say, um, it went to Abraham Lincoln, and then we have you know, Obama you following. Know, part of my job, they, mm -hmm. my, my colleagues call me the bus driver, because uh -huh. <laughs> I'm supposed to keep things moving forward. I'd love and to talk about Hamilton. So, yeah. I hate the man. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we can talk to you about Hamilton right after the show, but I'm Thanks gonna, very I, much. I, I need to move us on to the next stop. All right, we got a call from way out there. Ann Williams from Richmond, Virginia. Welcome. You all have indicated this evening that at some points in our history we had very few people paying taxes. Right. But it recently seemed surprising to me to learn that less than 50% of the population currently is paying taxes. Can you speak to this? You want me to Whoa! <laughs> all right, half of you have it's, not paid your taxes. It's a historical. <laughs> no. It, it, one of the things that um, happened to a certain extent under the Reagan Tax Reform Act and even more under the Bush Tax Reform Act is to lower the rate of taxation, lower the rates, and increase the amount of exemptions. And by doing that, it is absolutely true that a larger percentage of Americans than let's say 20 or 30 years ago are not paying income tax. Now, we all know that they are paying sales tax, they are paying gas tax, they are paying social security tax if they work in most industries. So, we, you know, this is where we have to get a little technical and say, yes, they're not paying income tax, but they are paying a lot of other taxes. This is also one of the sources of frustration, is all the different kinds of taxes we pay because it's harder to know what's happening with your money when we pay all these different kinds of taxes. And I haven't even talked about different jurisdictions. Right, federalism. Uh, but mm -hmm. you pay federal taxes, you pay state taxes, you pay local taxes. I don't know about Richmond, but in many counties there are special districts, uh, so you pay a special water tax. Uh, and this is very confusing to Americans, and I, I would say that, Ameri I, I'll venture to say that Americans 
pay taxes to a wider variety of jurisdictions and a broader kind of, uh, a broader array of taxes. Now, on the other side, we do that because people do want to see what their taxes are going for. So when you pay your gasoline tax, you've got a pretty good idea that it's going for highways and bridges and highway repair. Until those great society Democrats chipped into that in the late 60s and began using it for urban mass transportation. And then you got started getting debates, hey, why should I pay gasoline tax for someone who's riding a subway and not paying gasoline tax? But we have these special taxes to try to create a little more transparency so people can see what they're getting for their money. The greatest example of that, of course, is the Social Security Trust Fund, where people have a sense, I'm contributing these funds for my own retirement so that it'll be there when I retire. That, of course, defeats one of the great public goals of taxes, which is promoting the collective good. Whoa. <laughs> uh, we don't have too much more time, so I think yeah, we'll we take have, we, we one have, more call or um, two. Let's if we're quick, we can do two. If we're quick, we can do two calls. Yes or no? <laughs> well, you've already touched on, on some of it, uh, state debt absumption, mortgage right. deductions, uh, uh, use of the tariff to break up trust. Uh, talk a bit about the historical context of the use of tax incentives, tax deductions, right. tax subsidies to promote political and social objectives. Yeah, and you bet you're asking a 20th century question, but I know you're asking an 18th and 19th century question. Well, I think Brother Hamilton said it yeah, off. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want exemptions? You don't want to do canals? No, but certainly inducements. Yeah. Inducements. Think about use of tax policy to further social purposes, Peter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it never happened before. <laughs> The way taxes, well, I'll tell you the, the, the key to, to public finance in the 19th century during the go-go period of internal improvement and infrastructural development is borrowing. This is where we get deep into debt. Borrowing on the basis of taxation that the taxpayers are going to service those debts. And we had a bonanza of spending on canals, mostly. Uh, later railroads, but mostly canals. And, uh, and in the uh, Panic of 1837, um, states were unable in the wake of that to service, to pay for the interest on their debts. And American states, now, now we think of the federal government with the big tax problem. In the 19th century, it was American states whose credit ratings went into the toilet and it was only in the 20th century that they could begin to borrow again. And now, of course, beginning in the 1830s and 40s, particularly New York's uh, Constitutional Convention in 1846, establishes the pay-as-you-go rule so that taxes, uh, states cannot go into debt. And that's right. the, one of the great problems right now and one of the reasons why uh, uh, stimulus is so complicated be, uh, and much of it's used to prop up state governments because it's the states that do most of the work for us, folks, but the states can't go into debt the way the federal government can. So it's a, an interesting reversal that now we find that the states are the paragons of fiscal responsibility because of constitutional amendments. And then we, in fact, 
pass the problem up to the national level, and we expect, therefore, as a result of this constitutional provisions and, and constitutions for balanced budgets, therefore we have enhanced unintentionally the power of the federal government. Yeah. Now, and, now you asked about, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, in the same way we've always looked for a transparent tax policy, we've also always looked for a tax policy that did not favor one group over another, and we've never had it for a single day. Okay? And, and, and because by its very nature, taxes, because of the federal system, there's all these different jurisdictions, everybody's jostling. We see it today with you know, schools, uh, taxes for public schools. Well, I'm willing to do that, but only in my neighborhood. You know, somebody who lives on the side, other side of that invisible line, you know, a quarter of a mile from here, I'm not paying for their kids to go to school. So you find that it's like a fractal. It's, it's at every level. Within different states, are not going to do it, you know, Taxachusetts or what, you know, is that, that they are doing all these things. So yeah. the, the, the thing is, Americans always believe that there's a simple answer. We always think that we, if we were, we could always find the solution to something like this. Never a simple answer on backstory. <laughs> That's right, if any answer at all. So your answer is, is that really, as long as there's been the United States up to today, the tax policy is always favoring somebody over somebody else. Guys, I'm getting really confused. I just want to throw this out. And that is, on the one hand, we talk about transparency. Yeah. People, people know what they're paying and they know what they're getting. That's the American way. The democratic process should enable us to, to have this information. On the other hand, that leads to this kind of vicious cycle of calculating benefit. And on the other hand, Wait, how many hands do you have? <laughs> I got, that was one, here's okay. the other. And I want you to solve this for me. We'll have a majority vote, the three of us, so okay. there's gonna be no ties. Uh, and that is, it seems to me, a taxation policy is most successful when we can mystify. That is, we can combine things. The image I use for the US Constitution is it's like a sausage. You don't wanna know what goes into it. Honestly, I revere it too, but don't read it. You won't like it. <laughs> And I think taxation is like that. And what is that sausage then? The sausage is our belief that there is some larger collective good, right. that we constitute a people, and that we have responsibilities to each other, and we don't think about where our tax dollars are going. Now, of course, that's a slippery slope to despotism, you might well say. But I think it's lose-lose. I don't know why these guys are such optimists. I want to know, is there chopped liver in the sausage? Is, is that the part? <laughs> it's I, stuffed with enchiladas. <laughs> we have another call, I believe. Our last, our last call, regrettably. Okay, this will be kind of a follow-up. Um, but the, I'm curious about the sort of cultural history about where this idea that um, we're not responsible for the people on the other side of the invisible line, that, that my taxes shouldn't go to um, shouldn't pay for any, any services or goods that don't, I myself or my family doesn't receive. Yeah, well I'll give you the deep philosophical 18th century background and it's a phrase, state of nature. It's the libertarian fantasy that we began life as independent, sovereign, contracting, consenting individuals and then we formed this mutual improvement society called the state and if we don't like it we're gonna walk out and the state is only going to be legitimate as long as it serves our purposes. So it's the mythology of the state of nature and that you could possibly survive in the state of nature. I can't even survive in, well, I won't. So that's that. one perspective. That, that, that's the deep philosophical perspective. A shallow, almost comic book-like perspective uh, is that it's the flip side 
of one reason that we are the great magnet for immigrants from all over the world who come here is that what I have, I have made with my own hands and with my own hard work. And that is just like the, the same ideas of the federal government uh, or the, of liberty are woven into this. So is the idea that everything that is in my family has come through me. And, yeah. I, I, and I think- These young ingrates want to take away our social security. What? <laughs> what? I didn't hear that. And, 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 um, and I would simply add a very important uh, and enduring principle in American governance, which is accountability. Uh, and I think that Americans have always preferred the local, if possible, because locally you can see, you can be accountable. It's one of the reasons uh, that voluntary organizations are so, have been so important in all three of mm -hmm. our centuries because there's a sense that you can pick and choose, but you also, you hold Paul accountable um, when you write out a big check for him. Because you wanna see that your money is really being well used. And Americans wanna see that in government as well. So this is not always insidious. We, we right. phrased it as, uh, we don't wanna pay for them. But there's also something very important and very good about the desire to see literally the way your money, your money is being used. And that's why war is important, even Cold War. In war, you feel that you can see where the money is going, and who is it going for? It's going for us, Americans. That's right? the sausage. Right, but as soon as war ends, then America begins breaking back down into its constituent elements, all the way down to the, the street, people across the street. But I think it's important to point out that Americans actually comply with their tax codes at a higher rate than any other people in the world. And it's because of the way we feel about our state. The state is us to some extent. Even when we feel alienated from it and we hate it, it's because it's supposed to be ours and we have that sense of its being us. Whereas in European countries have a long anti-statist tradition where the state is very powerful and if people can cheat the state, they will, because it's not them. So, so Peter, can yeah. we historicize this? And, and this is not a bad way to, to close with this question. Do you think that, on balance, over much of American history, Peter and Ed, Americans actually have been willing to pay their taxes? Yeah, I would say absolutely. Uh, and that we have uh, a... Uh, uh, the American people have been extraordinarily compliant taxpayers, and that's partly measured by the way they complain about taxes. <laughs> because they wouldn't bother if they were successfully cheating. <laughs> Don't pay any attention to me. I love paying taxes. <laughs> and I would just venture this mega generalization, and that is if you want to study the history of taxation worldwide, taxation and civilization are integrally related. You want to go back to the state of nature, we won't tax you, and you will die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that somehow that's a, that was a great line, but it doesn't really sound like what we should stop with. No! And, so, and no! And Live on, to give! To backstory! And, and can you end things on a more life-giving? No, I, I really can't. No. Uh, you can do it, Ed. <laughs> what I would say is that I wouldn't want us, I'd want us to see the, the, the struggle over taxation as a sign of healthy debate. Uh, I do worry, go back to your question, that increasingly we feel that if we have the money, we can retreat into our own worlds. 
and that we can live in our mortgage-protected homes and our subsidized schools and all these things. And ironically, in a modern society, a lot of the bonds between us are mystified, right. as Peter said. And one of the things about history is that it shows us that there are bonds that are tying us to the past as well, you know? that we are growing directly out of the past. We're not reinventing ourselves. And we have obligations that we've incurred from prior wars and from prior injustices. And so the taxes that we're paying are paying off debts that we've been incurring for hundreds of years. The good thing is that those taxes are also making investments that if we hang together, our descendants will be enjoying for hundreds of years more. I think that sometimes we just think about the present day with the depth of the front page of the newspaper or the soundbite on TV. And without thinking about cause or consequence, we get so worked up that we sort of forget about the backstory.